We're in a series called Grace and Truth. It's a simple title for a very complicated conversation in many ways. The Bible says in John 1.14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And the question we're wanting to pose in this series is how do we live like Jesus in the world we're living in today? How do we navigate many challenging conversations and many challenging moments like Jesus? We've been in Luke chapter 15, and if you have your copy of God's Word today, you can go to Luke chapter 15 with me. A couple of weeks ago, we spent some time in Luke 15, and at the beginning of the chapter, the Bible tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious, were questioning and even being critical of Jesus because He associated with people that they didn't think He should be associating with. He associated with sinners and tax collectors. We even find in Matthew's gospel that Jesus, after Matthew decided to follow him at his invitation, Matthew invited Jesus into his home and had a meal with a bunch of other tax collectors and a bunch of other sinners, the Bible calls them. And we can interpret that in just about any way you can imagine. People who didn't live to follow Christ, who didn't live according to God's truth, who who weren't... Uh, trying to live in a way that honored God. And so Jesus was criticized often for hanging out with these people, not giving in to their ways, not joining in in any sinfulness, but in spending time with these people. And in Luke 15, we read three stories, really one main text. We read first the story of the lost sheep, and the heart of the shepherd to go after the lost sheep. And we expressed a couple of weeks ago that we're grateful that God came looking for us. We talked about the story of the lost coin and how diligent the woman who had lost the coin searched for that coin until she found it because she was she considered that coin to be valuable and maybe even sentimental in some way. And so she went after that coin and found that coin. And in both contexts of those stories, the people rejoiced at finding the sheep or the coin and invited other people to celebrate with them. At the latter part of Luke 15, we find probably the most well-known of the three stories, and that's the story of the lost son. Most people refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. But really, it's a story of two brothers, and today we're going to focus on the older brother. When we focused on the younger son a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how this was a wealthy family. The younger son, at some point, wanted freedom in his mind, to be out from under his father, out from under the rules of home. And disrespectfully, he went to his dad and asked for inheritance. And when he got what he asked for, he left home and wasted everything in wild living. Well, after he'd lost everything, the land he was in, a foreign land, became uh, full of famine. And so he had a need to find work. He ends up working for a pig farmer, and he becomes so hungry that he's hungry for the pig food while he's in the pig pen taking care of the pigs. Now, the Bible says in Luke 15, verse 17, that he came to his senses. 
And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how the Holy Spirit can be so much at work in people's lives even before we share the gospel with them, even in ways we don't realize it. Through the prompting inwardly, through creation, through life circumstances, the Holy Spirit can help bring awareness to people's lives that they need to come to their senses, that they need Jesus, that they need to come home. And the young son went home, and he was hoping just to be a servant in his dad's house. Look, dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I've blown it. I'm not worthy to be your son. His entire hope rested on the father's response. And to his surprise, when the younger son had barely arrived on the property, dad had been looking for him every day since he'd left, and he ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. The son was repentant, but before he could even get all of his words out, the father invited his servants to celebrate the younger son, a beautiful scene of the grace of God for those who will come near to him. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God for those who come near to God? Now, I've heard a lot of messages through the years about the prodigal son, and rightfully so. There are a lot of people who have run away from God, a lot of people who need to come home. But I I haven't heard a ton of messages, at least I didn't growing up, about the older brother. But remember the context of this passage. There's a party going on at this point in the Scripture The younger prodigal son has returned home, he's repentant, and the father celebrates. But there's a larger context to this text. You heard it two weeks ago, you heard it last week. Jesus was being criticized for his interactions with tax collectors and sinners, people who were just like this younger son. People who were sinful, just like this younger son. And I think today we can rightly assume Jesus told all of Luke chapter 15 to get to this point, to get to the point of the older brother. Jesus' point was to respond to the Pharisees' criticism and their way of life and to show them their attitude was really poor and they were more like the older son than they were like the father. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 15, verse number 25. In this scene, we find the older son right where he was supposed to be, right where he'd always been. He's at home, he's in the field, he's working, or at least he's overseeing the work. It's, it's very likely that this older son, because of his diligence, had helped to make the father's estate and farm most successful. He hadn't run off like his, other, like his brother He hadn't disrespected his father, at least verbally or by his actions, but we'll see in the context of Scripture that he clearly had some pretty strong pent-up feelings and bitterness towards his dad. Like every other day, the older son made his walk back to the house from the field. He didn't seem to expect anything different. He didn't probably expect his younger brother to be home. I I can certainly say, I think we can agree, that the older son hadn't wasted any time looking for his brother. As he approached the house, he hears music and dancing, celebration. Clearly it wasn't an AG church because we don't dance, right? (laughs) Just kidding. Relax. He hears music and dancing, but he wouldn't go in. Instead, the older brother asks a servant, what in the world is going on at home? Somebody's happy. What's happened? 
And in this moment, the older son received a very most shocking report. Look at verse 27. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. I don't know what you imagine in this moment, but I imagine the older son's demeanor completely changing, that visually anyone who was standing nearby could see the look on his face and his demeanor change. What? First of all, it was a shock that maybe that the younger son had come home. Or maybe, maybe the older son knew, you know what, he's foolish to leave in the first place. There's going to come a point that he's going to regret his decision. But here's the younger son, he's actually come home. That's one part. But the most shocking part, dad is celebrating this guy? He's throwing a party for him? You mean when he came on the property, he didn't make him bow down and kiss his ring and grab him around the neck and tell him how dumb it was that he did what he did? I mean, is dad experiencing amnesia at this point? Does he remember how bad and disrespectful this boy's been? He does know what all he's done, right? So the Bible tells us that the older son was so angry, he refused to go into the house. I am not about to walk into this house and celebrate this boy who's had disrespect for his father, who's lived wildly and wasted everything he had. I'm not about to celebrate him. But it's interesting. I want you to notice in this passage, the the older brother wasn't really mad at the younger son. Now, maybe he even thought to himself when the younger son left, go ahead and leave. You'll be back when the money runs out and you reach the end of your rope. The older brother wasn't mad at his younger brother. The older brother had issue with his father. Look at verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. You can imagine a couple of different scenarios. The servants went in and told the father that, it, that the older brother wouldn't come in, or maybe even the older brother sent a servant, go tell dad I need to talk to him out here right now. But whatever the case, he was angry and he refused to go in. So his father goes out and pleads with him. And that language pleaded with him is literally to beg, to try to convince him to change his mind. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you. Notice that phrase, slaving for you. This is his son. But he viewed everything he'd done for his father as being a slave for him rather than love and honor. It was obligation for him. I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. How could you, Dad? Here he is coming home with nothing after leaving with everything you gave him. I mean, I'm not surprised that he wasted it all, but here he is back and you're celebrating him? When are you going to recognize, Dad, everything that I've done? I've been here. I've been working. I've been overseeing your work. I haven't wasted your money. I've done everything you've asked me to do. My life is full of good works to your benefit and should be for your celebration. The older son did every one of these things out of obligation, not out of love for the father. He seemed to have no understanding of the blessings of simply being a child of the father. 
But Dad, you've never come close to throwing me a party. You hadn't let me have any fun with my friends. You're over here celebrating the brother who's got it all wrong, and here I am, the brother who's got it all right. Look at verse 31. My son, the father said, and I don't know how you read this, but I read this with a father's heart, the same father who ran to the younger son full of compassion for him. I read these verses of Scripture with that same compassion. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate your brother and be glad because this brother of yours, he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Son, you haven't lost anything because I'm celebrating your brother. Everything I've got is yours simply because you are my son. Simply because you were my son. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate. This is my son. He's been gone. He was lost. He was dead, but he came to his senses. He returned. He came home. He's found. He's alive. Maybe even the father in that moment expressing, you know, he was repentant. He, he knows. He blew it. Verse 31. You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. I want you to notice that in Luke 15, there seems to be an open-ended ending to the way Jesus tells the story. There's no finishing to it. There's no conclusion. There's no resolution in this story. There's no evidence that the father convinced the older son, even though he pleaded with him. And there's no evidence that the older brother accepted anything or ever even went into the house to be with his brother. This is part of the point in all of this teaching from Jesus. Remember, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. He's telling this to make a point. And He connected the older brother to these Pharisees, to these religious people who thought they were better than others and criticized Jesus for spending time with tax collectors and sinners. There was never a resolution between Jesus and the majority of the Pharisees. The Pharisees grew more and more and more angry towards Jesus, and they went on, Scripture teaches, that they went on to try to question Jesus, to trap Him, and very early on in His ministry, begin to plot to kill Him. Think about it. The older brother considered himself better than the younger brother. I mean, after all, Dad, my life is full of good works. Look at what I've done. The Pharisees were the same way. They were self-righteous. They were proud. They were big on themselves. And they went around showing just how big they were in front of everyone. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus spoke... I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18. Uh, Jesus spoke about the Pharisees. Listen to what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. The Pharisees considered themselves worthy of God more because they did all of these good works compared to people who hadn't known God. If they weren't like others that lived in sin, 
In this moment, they shouldn't have been saying, thanks God, I'm not like everyone else because of what I do. They should have been saying, thanks God, if I'm not like someone else who's living in sin, it's only because of your grace at work in my life. It's not my good works. It's not my righteousness. It's not my ability to do good on my own. If, if there is any difference between myself and those who are choosing to live in a sinful lifestyle, it's not for me to brag about me. It's for me to brag about God and what He's done in my life. The older brother refused to associate or accept the younger brother with the father. And the Pharisees were the same way, refusing to associate with certain people and sinners and condemning Jesus for doing so. In fact, it was so bad, rather than helping people get to God, Jesus actually accused the Pharisees in Matthew 23 of not doing what they taught, so they were hypocrites, of adding more burdens onto people through their own traditions that they developed. They begin to tell people, this is how you should keep the law. And they actually were people, Jesus said, that made it harder for people to get to God. The older brother forgot the blessings he experienced simply from being the father's son. The younger son in the pig pen realized God's house is really where I need to be. The younger son recognized in the pig pen, I need to go home to the father. Even the servants have it better. Here were the Pharisees criticizing Jesus, and yet these religious teachers were the ones who had received God's Word. The people who knew the truth, knew His promises, had known the prophets. They hadn't lost anything because Jesus was on the scene except maybe their attention. In fact, the kingdom of God was growing as people were knowing the truth and being set free, recognizing their need for grace. But the older son wasn't getting the attention, and the Pharisees weren't getting the attention, and it rocked their world. There's one more thought that sticks out to me in this passage before we bring it home a little bit today. There's a difference between proximity and intimacy. The older brother was with the father. He was on the same property. He lived in the father's house. But the older brother, the Scripture's clear, did not share the heart of the father. The father welcomed the younger son home. The older brother became angry and refused. What's the point? Well, people can know about God and even be in proximity to God on a Sunday just like this, but it's when we walk in close relationship with God that we do more than just simply know about God. It's in close relationship that we actually become more like Jesus. And when we're becoming more like Jesus, we begin to share His desires, His values, His heart. So here's the question for us today. Which are we out of this passage? How do church people respond when prodigals come home? Are we like the older brother? Or are we like the father? Now, I'm not naive. I know that someone can reach out to God from any place at any time. There's no limits to where people can pray or come back to the Lord. 
But I also know in many cases, the local church and local church people, the local church becomes the place that people come to when they're looking for hope, when they're looking for truth, when they're considering the opportunity to give religion one more chance, when life is a mess and they can't seem to clean it up. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I just really need to get back in church? There's something inside of them that says, I need more than what I can do in my own life. The local church becomes the place that people come to when their life is a mess. They don't know what to do. When they're confused about who they are or what they're supposed to do in life. This is good. The local church should be a place, and we as people should be the people that are known for being the place to find hope and freedom and life. As believers, as Christ followers, as Christians, we should be a source of truth that points people to Christ and sees them set free. That's a good thing. So the question, though, becomes, when they come, and I'll just go far enough to say it bluntly, and they're coming... When they come, how will we respond? I can tell you that the reason some people haven't come to church or gone to a local church is because they've tried and the response was awful. Now, I get it. For those of you who who would say to me, well, we know there are going to be people in these days that are opposed to the gospel. We know there are going to be people who reject the gospel. We know there are going to be people who reject Christ. That's true. There are always going to be some who have made up their mind to reject God. But there are others who recognize there's something more for their life. There are other people who are recognizing, I've got this hole, I've got this void in me, and nothing I'm trying that the world has to offer is filling that spot. People are recognizing, I I need something more. I've said even in the last few weeks that in the last couple of years, the benefit to everything we've gone through in our world is that hopefully it's opened some people's eyes to recognize the things that people have held on to that they considered to be firm foundations have been shaken, and they're recognizing things in our world can change in the matter of hours. I mean, really... Two years ago, we were getting news updates every few hours, not knowing what was going to happen, how things were going to change. And and if you say today, well, we're on the other side of a pandemic, and we're on the other side of this and that and the other, that might be true. We may be in a different spot today, but the reality is tomorrow could be more of the same. I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy. I'm just dealing with the reality that the earth we're living in is groaning for the coming of Jesus. And as we're living in these days, there are going to be some challenging times. We're going to face some hard moments. And if our hope is anchored in anything in this world, it will fail. But if our confidence is anchored in Jesus, that's when we're going to be able to hold on. That's when we're going to be able to make it. And there are people in this world that are beginning to realize that, and they're beginning to say, i got to have more than what this world is giving me. i got to have more than what I've got in my life right now. There's got to be something more to it than this. 
And when they're asking those questions and they're running to a local church or they're talking to a Christ follower, it is my prayer that they will receive from us this outward grace and compassion that embraces them and leads to opportunities to share truth into their lives. Just this week, local news in the Twin Cities posted an article on social media that shared that millennials and Gen Zers are abandoning faith and leaving the local churches. This is not other places in the nation. This is right here. In fact, there's a prediction. I've only seen it once, but I've seen it. There's a prediction that says in the next 10, 20, maybe 25 years, if all of the trends continue in the Twin Cities as they are now, all the population continues to increase, particularly influenced by world ethnicities, races, and nationalities. As they come in and there's the influence of other world religions, as the influence of witchcraft and other things is growing in this area, as all of the current trends are happening and church attendance is in decline, there's a prediction that in 15, 20, 25 years, there will be virtually zero church attendance or involvement in the Twin Cities. Zero. So, I understand there are going to be people who reject the gospel and reject God, but I also understand there are a lot of people who need hope today. There are a lot of people who need freedom today. And, and when they come to the church or they interact with Christ followers, what are they getting? Because just like the older brother and the Pharisees, church people have been known to look down at other people and consider themselves better than somebody else. It seems sometimes that we can almost have our own amnesia where we forget the grace of God is not earned, but it is a gift that has been received when we believe in Christ. We wouldn't be where we are today unless the grace of God helped us start this journey and unless the grace of God had kept us all along this journey. We ought to be people who remember every day of our lives and are grateful for the grace of God. Church people can be known to not associate with certain other types of people. Sometimes it can be that we've allowed culture to dictate and, and they've almost things have almost become cultural norms that make it harder to associate with people that are different from us. Well, they don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They don't act like us. They don't talk like us. They don't live like us. They haven't navigated and made decisions like us. They don't vote like us. They haven't navigated the cultural hot-button issues like us. And somewhere along the way, if we're not careful in all of they aren't like us, we've created an us versus them rather than believing that and proclaiming that we can all be on this journey together and Jesus is at work in all of our lives. We've expected people to live truth before they've encountered the truth, and we've had no grace for people to come to God and to grow. We've got to be careful, church folks, not to look down our noses at other people. Church people have been known to grow jealous when attention is shifted towards reaching and discipling, reaching lost people and discipling those who get saved. You might think, some of you might think that these are statements that no one would ever say, but I can tell you they would. We don't want those kinds of people. 
We don't want people to mess with our stuff, trample our territory, or get their fingerprints all over our glass. Or the big one, where are we spending our money? I had a friend of mine years and years ago, pastors a, a very large Assemblies of God church, and years ago he began to sense the Lord working in his heart that they were to begin to shift some focus and begin to focus more on reaching unchurched people, reaching lost people. So he called a friend of his who was really like a mentor in his life, and he said, I'm, I'm sensing that God is telling me that we should be reaching unchurched people. We should be reaching lost people. We, we don't want to just spend our time uh, proselytizing and reaching other people from other churches and, and pulling on the people that already claim to know Jesus. We want to go after the people that nobody's going after. The mentor, who was a great leader, spoke back to him and said, well, first of all, yeah, that should be the goal of every church, right? I mean, great commandments, great commission, it's kind of a given. But he said to him, you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared that as you begin to make the shifts, you will lose a certain percentage of your people, and you will lose a certain percentage of your giving. He said, it doesn't have to be an issue, you just need to know that in doing that, you're going to lose some people. I thought, wow, are you kidding me? But then I served as a, as a presbyter when we were living in Arkansas. And I went into a church. We, we had some churches that were referred to as district-affiliated churches. They were smaller churches and and myself and the district superintendent and their local pastor would be the board of the church. And so oftentimes the things that came up in those local churches, finances, uh, overall health of the church, things of that nature, it would take me going in and, and having a meeting with the church family. And I began to sense in one of the churches that there was a lot of friction going on. And the friction, I learned very quickly, was that there was a pastor there who wanted to lead them from being a dying church to a church that was effectively reaching people. But the people there didn't like what was going on. So I go in to have a meeting with them, and mind you, at this point, that church had shrank down to less than 10 people. They had plenty of money in the bank. They hadn't been spending a lot of money, certainly weren't frivolous. And the pastor had spent $600 to have a VBS for kids in the community. And in the meeting, almost immediately, that, those church people were complaining about how much money was spent to reach those kids. I can tell you that it came to a point I had to make a tough decision because that church died. Sounds like a given that we should be reaching unchurched people, that we should be reaching lost people, but in reality, people can become frustrated when resources, time, and people, and staff, and others are dedicated to reaching lost people and discipling them on a journey to help them grow rather than catering to every personal preference we can have. The amens have quit this morning. 
well, I don't feel like this is my church because I don't know all these people. Listen, let's let it be a good thing that we may never in a growing church know everyone, but we can plug into a life group and get to know some people really well and do life together and care for one another. And we can do our best to love everyone we connect with, but it would be a shame for any local church to huddle up in their tiny holy huddle and say it's us four and no more. And any church that does that is going to die. We have to invest in kingdom priorities. And if there's one thing that sticks out in Luke chapter 15 more than anything else, it's that lost people are a priority to God. Are you hearing me today? Are we hearing what God is saying to us? Can we meet people with the grace that leads to opportunities for truth? Can we meet people with the grace that leads to opportunities for truth? We're going we're to continue to flesh this out. We're not done with this conversation. But can the exterior, if you will, of our initial interactions be soft edges that are full of compassion and grace and the love of God while still keeping that firm center of truth without compromise? But can we meet people with the grace embrace that leads to the opportunities for truth? Are you with me? Can we do it? Can, can truth seekers come in? People who are looking for something. They're not sure they even know what they're looking for. They're not sure they have all the answers figured out, but they know they're looking for something. Can this be the place that truth seekers come and explore? Can this be the place that lost prodigals can come home and know God for the first time or know God again? I say today, yes. The answer is yes. EPAG is the place, and we are the people to welcome people home to God. God, we will embrace with grace, we will lead in truth, and we will inspire people of all walks of life to follow Jesus, and we will encourage one another, no matter where we are on the journey, as we journey with Jesus together. Hmm. Let's invest in kingdom priorities. Let's make ourselves available in this to what God's wanting to do through us. Would you stand with me? I, I really hesitate often to say strongly that I, that I feel like there's a spiritual battle going on because I, I've seen so many fruitcakes and nuts out there that talk about spiritual things that they give a bad name for the real deal, okay? But there's a sense in my heart today and has been that we're engaged in a spiritual war for the souls of men and women all over this area. And I, I think I can say this, and, and I hope, and I, th I think you'll know what I mean. I can sense 
that there's a greater spiritual battle pastoring in this area today than anywhere else I've ever pastored. But when I say that, I don't say that from a place of fear. I say that from a place of, it's battle time. I say that from a place of, I don't think the enemy likes that EPAG wants to invest in kingdom priorities. And that makes me happy. Really. Does that make sense? I'm not... I'm not trying to sound quirky and out in left field. I'm just telling you, I believe that, that what God is wanting to do is much, much deeper than what we sense on the surface. It's not by accident that all the labels are on this area. It's not by accident that people identify this area with all these different things. It's not by accident that we're here today. We could have lived at any point in time in human history, and yet here we are, right here, right now, for such a time as this. It's not by accident that the nations are represented in our front yard. It's not by accident. God's up to something really big, and we want to live full of grace truth. Would you just pray with me today? Father, we want to be used by you. There's a sense in our hearts today, oh God, that you want to do some absolutely incredible things in our hearts, yeah, in our lives, yeah, but also through us. God, through through our lives every day, not just on, on a Sunday when we're gathered, not just on a Wednesday, but Lord, you want to do some incredible things through this group of Christ followers every day. So Lord, we yield to you. And we ask you to continue to fulfill your promise of pouring out your Spirit in our lives because we recognize that with the power of the Spirit comes the power to be great witnesses for Christ. And in these days, we need the discernment, the power, the giftings of the Holy Spirit. We need the overflow of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We recognize today that there seems to be a lot of darkness in the world, but we recognize as well the promise that you said you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And that doesn't mean, Lord, just that hell would come against us. That means we can charge into some enemy territories and claim it for Christ. So God, today, we yield to you. We want to live out full of grace and truth to have such Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-led interactions that, Lord, people are embraced, people feel welcomed, people feel the love of Christ through us, and, Lord, that in those moments there would be a growing relationship and growing opportunities to speak life and to speak truth into them according to your leading and your word. You will help us. You'll help us to do that in our families, in our workplaces in our schools, in our communities. We yield to you today because we believe 
kingdom priorities include reaching people. And so, Lord, today, we want to reach, we want to journey with, we want to interact with, we want to we be on this journey with people. Lord, lead us, help us, and keep us. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we would hear what you're saying to us today. And I pray that you would go with us and keep us safe and well and whole. I pray that you would bless and keep this people. That you would make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. That your countenance would ever be turned their direction and you would grant them your peace. I pray, O Lord, that we be the people who help welcome others home to you. Be with us this day in Jesus' name.